This is Nina Choi Romiller from season one, episode one of Rise from the Shadows, and you are listening to The Shadows Podcast. All right, I want to welcome everybody to another episode of The Shadows Podcast. I'm very excited today to have Jerome Sapp here with us. He's a former safety at Notre Dame. He also played professional football as well in the NFL with the Baltimore Ravens and the Indianapolis Colts. Sir, how are you doing? Good. How are you, man? Good. You're in Vegas right now, right? Yeah, man. Loving, loving the weather here in Vegas, even though it was, it was snowing last week, which was kind of creepy. Um, but, other, you know, other than that, I can't complain at all. Yep. Yeah, it's a lot better than I'm in Alabama and we've had like tornadoes coming through here all night last <laughs> night. So before we get started, you know, talking about your football career and, and all the stuff you're doing now, if you don't mind, you know, educating our audience as to uh, your childhood, your upbringing. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Houston, Texas. Um, not so good neighborhood. Uh, I was, you know, my mom raised me. My, my dad was pretty much incarcerated most most of my youth and a lot of my life. Um, but you know, that, that, that almost was a fuel to, uh, a, a burning fire inside, you know, to prove that I could be better than he was, you know, and, and, you know, later on in life, obviously I made amends and, you know, when you, when, you know, when you get older, you get more mature and you realize people cope with things differently. Um, but <clears throat> growing up, you know, it was, it was a great childhood. You know, I just remember loving to compete and, you know, just loving the thrill of competition and whether that ended in wins losses I just love to compete and as a as a result of that you know my brother and I got to be really really good in sports and you know for me I got to be the number one high school player in in, in the state of Texas football player in the state of Texas um so it was it was kind of crazy you know getting recruited you know there's there's nothing that can really prepare a a kid for that you know I mean it's it's crazy you know you, you see it on the movie like movies like Blue Chip and yeah. um you know all, all those rep- yeah, you know, he got get- yeah. yeah you know but <clears throat> nothing can really re- prepare you for it because you're you know obviously most of the time you're in your junior year when they start recruiting you um you know you don't <laughs> you don't know what you want to wear to school the next day let alone what college you want to go to you know and you know, the coaches are pretty ruthless, as they should be, because um, recruiting is pretty ruthless. So, you know, having all these, you know, big name coaches, you know, parked outside your house, lined up to come talk to you after school, you know, was, was like, wow, you know. So, but, you know, being able to handle that maturely with my mother and putting priorities in place where they can only call certain times or, you know, things like that, that really helped. Um, and then ultimately, you know, I wanted a challenge and, you know, I almost went to University of Texas because, you know, Mac Brown was there at the time. You know, they, they had the number one recruiting class multiple years and all my friends were going there. And my best friend who I played football with in high school was going there. But, you know, my mom was basically like, listen, you know, you don't have to stay home if you want to challenge yourself. You, sh- you should go challenge yourself somewhere. So. Ultimately, for me, Notre Dame was that challenge. You know, I, I felt that there was, you know, you couldn't find a, another mix of academics, tradition, and and football, you know. So, you know, and, and that's no knock on any other school because I considered a lot of schools. It was SEC, um, SSC, uh, Stanford, Michigan, Miami, 
Florida State. I, I considered a lot of those programs, but you know, with Notre Dame, it was you know it was it was it was pretty evident. That's where yeah. I belong. So um, I ended up majoring in finance there, uh, which really opened my eyes to man. There's a whole nother world. Um, <laughs> there's a whole nother world outside of football. You know, but because before then, you know, football was everything, and you know, you're taking general classes and stuff. But once I chose my major. I really knew that I wanted to do something in finance when, when mm -hmm. I retired. Um, and fortunately, or, you know, if I didn't get drafted. So fortunate for me, I, I, I used to work at Merrill Lynch in the off season or the summer times in my college career. So I'd go home for a month or so, work at Merrill Lynch, come back to school for a summer school and summer workouts. And so I got my feet wet really early in, in financial planning mm -hmm. and, and really more important money management. Um, so as a result, I, I ended up getting drafted by the Ravens. I was fortunate enough. Um, I remember teaching money management classes to the rookies and first year guys, which is <laughs> just kind of interesting. Like Terrell you know? Suggs, right? Yeah. That, Terrell was in my draft class. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I still remember him in class, you know, asking all these crazy questions, you know, cause at the time he was the youngest guy in the NFL. He was, yeah. I think only 20 years old when he got drafted, um, so and he was all he was every bit of 20 years old, too, um, which is awesome to see him now that, you know, how he's matured and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, hold it on. Um, so, yeah, so got drafted, um, ended up getting cut my, my second year, going into my second year. And that was a life changing experience for me, you know, for young athletes, you know, young professionals, you know, the, the, the worst and the best thing that can happen is you lose your job. You know, for a professional athlete, for a football player, you know, because our contracts aren't guaranteed, you know, when you lose that job, you get cut, you know, there's no there's no parachute or there's no net to catch you, and you just hope someone else likes you. Um, and I was young, and, you know, you're still under that impression that it's college. You know, you'll be here with these guys for a while. You know, you're like a family, but that was the first time it occurred to me <laughs> that this really is a business. It's not a family. Um, you can like these people and you can even, obviously you respect a lot of the people, um, but it's a business. And as soon as you, as a young mind, a young player, a young professional, understand the business component of it, then you learn not to take it personal, um, which is which I had to go through. Um, but I remember the day I got cut, I remember the feeling that I had and I was like, man, I hate this feeling, like feeling like a disposable asset, you know, which I was, I was yeah. athletes are disposable, you know, assets, you know, you, you have one, his useful life is up or her useful life is up and you, you get rid of that one and you get another one, you know, um, that, that's just the way it is, you know, that's the reality, but I hated the, the way they made me feel when they, they cut me. So, you know, I remember sitting at home, you know, at the time, you know, my wife actually was starting her first day of the job. And, and I, you know, I remember thinking, man, like, it would be very selfish of me to call her and ruin her day on her yeah. first day. So I remember sitting at home for seven hours, man, just by myself and thinking about what's next, you know, because I, I hadn't gotten any calls yet from any teams. And so I remember starting the process of enrolling in Harvard Business School. Um, obviously, it's a longer process. So I started that process during that seven hours because I told myself I was going to do everything that I could to make me better, 
You know, I, I couldn't worry about anything else. You know, you can just worry about you. How can you make you better? Um, so that was that's what compelled me to to get my exec, my MBA in off seasons. That feeling. Um, so which which is what happened. So I ended up getting accepted to Harvard Business School, and in the off seasons, I'd be in Cambridge at Harvard. You know, getting my MBA. So. <clears throat> Actually, later on that night, though, the day I got cut, Coach Dungey called me from the Colts. It was like, hey, you know, we wanted to draft you. Um, but, as a, you know, the draft is all kind of crazy stuff that happens. This team picks that player, which shifts now priorities. So, but anyway, he was like, listen, you know, we got to, we wanted to draft you. Now we have a chance to, to sign you. So um, it was actually interesting. They gave me a signing bonus after I got cut from one team, which was kind of, it's like, man, that's not that's not very normal, you know. And usually, you just they just sign you and you're happy, you know. Um, but those two years in Indianapolis were were very important for me. I think as a young man and as a professional, and you know, just as a human, you know, I learned to I learned to live life kind of on my terms, you know, within the rules, but how I wanted to live it. You know, I wasn't worried about what people thought because at that point the worst had happened to me in my professional career I've been cut you know like so there's all kind of psychological emotional things that happen to an athlete for the first time they're told in so many words we don't want you anymore you're not good enough obviously you know as I mentioned it's a business decision it's not a personal thing mm -hmm. um but going to Indy I had to essentially rediscover myself as me and I think that's was a start of me as an adult. You know, when, when we all think about moments in our life that, you know, that defined us as a, as a father, us as a husband or as an adult, you know, I, you know, actually that, that seven hours that I spent at home while my wife was at work, that was the first real husband decision I think I've ever made, not ruining her day, even though my day was terrible, you know? Um, but getting to Indy, you know, under Coach Dungey, who was amazing, and playing with Peyton Manning and playing with all those amazing, you know, future Hall of Famers, you know, you learned what excellence was. You learned what how it meant to to prepare, like not just prepare, but prepare. Like, you know, they drop a ball, do it again. Okay, we don't drop balls. Okay, you if you're not going full speed, get out of the drill. We'll get someone in else that, that can go full speed. You know, everything was to excellence. And that's why the, the Colts and Peyton Manning were, were who were they were who they were. You know, they 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 performed at a level so much higher than everyone else. And the cool thing about it was, you know, the type of personalities they were, they brought you up to that level with them, you know. I mean, they wanted you to perform at that level. Um, or else, you know, you're only strongest as your, your weakest link. So you know, two years with the Colts, I get a call in the airport. It's like, hey, Jerome, uh, from Bill Polian, with uh, the GM of the uh, the Colts. He said, hey, Jerome, I just want to let you know we traded you back to Baltimore. Thank you for, you know, thank you for your time and good luck, you know. And, you know, I remember thinking, man, that's how it goes to get traded. Like, I thought it was you know, kind of more than that, but it was pretty short and sweet. So... <clears throat> Back to Baltimore, and you know I'm now a mature guy. You know I, I knew who I who I who I really was, and you know and that was also a great 
great time. Two more years in Baltimore with Ray Lewis and Ed Reed and Rex Ryan and you know all those those you know great personalities. And I really got to a point where after those two years, they didn't sign me back. And I started a company already. And I literally got to the point where I wanted to start competing in the business world. You know, all of my friends from, from college, high school, started already moving up in the corporate ladder, so to speak, you know. Um, and I realized where I wanted to go after football, you know, I was behind kind of, you know, yeah. I was kind of behind and I kind of saw the right. I mean, it was kind of a glass ceiling for me. I, I felt, you know, just because I was a lower draft pick, teams weren't willing to make, you know, they, were, they weren't willing to really risk much on me. And they were always bringing in younger guys, even though they tell me I was better. They'd say they, they would hope that the younger guy would end up being better because he's cheaper, which which makes sense. It's business, right? So I literally retired after two years. I, re I mean, after the, after the, I guess, six years, five, six years, I retired. I told my agent, I said, hey, you know, I thank you for everything you've done for me. But, you know, this next leg of the journey of my life, you know, I got to do it by myself on my own. And this football is not involved with that. And, you know, I've never looked back. You know, I've never looked back after that phone call because I was always preoccupied with business. You know, when that, when athletes talk about um, that void that's missing when they retire, it don't matter what kind of athlete you are, um, you know, you, that void, that hole in your heart of you're missing something and nothing can ever fulfill that. And that's real. Like, you know, you don't even have to be an athlete. You can be, you know, whatever you do and you do well for some period of time, you, de you, you, you develop a dependency for it, you mm -hmm. know, and, you know, psychologically, you, you know, there's a mental kind of identity purgatory kind of like, who am I, you know, you know, who am I to the world? Who am I to myself? So the way I combated that was business competing in the business world. You know, I felt, man, I was like, if, if I attack the business world, the same way I attack sports and football full speed ahead, um, you know, but obviously smart enough to know when to, to maneuver, you know, left or right, you know, I, I, I thought I could be, I, I thought I could be okay, you know, and you know, that, that was, that was it. I never looked back at football because I left it all on the field. You know, if you, mm -hmm. if you said, if you, if you asked me, do you want one more play? I'd say for what, <laughs> you know, like, cause I still remember my last play and, I still kind of feel my last play too. I gave it all, you know? So that allowed me to really shift my focus on to, to being an entrepreneur. Well, yeah. what I thought I knew about being an entrepreneur, you know? Um, and, and that's kind of what propelled me later in life. So the first company I started, our first customer was actually the Navy SEALs. It was a apparel company. So imagine Lululemon, but everything was made out of, plastic bottles you know yeah. um and at the time you know no one was doing that actually at the time nike had played around with um you know recycled uniforms for the 2008 olympics but other than that patagonia was playing around with different stuff but it wasn't performance material though so you know we we literally hit a hole in the market or as they say a blue ocean of opportunity and we, we, we catapulted, we, we took advantage of it. And, you know, one of the funnest times of my life 
and th- this is this is real talk, was when we got to go train with the Navy SEALs, when they got to try out the material and and we got to train with them. It was almost like, man, <laughs> I, like I've been missing you guys my whole life. We were like the same type A personalities, yeah. competitive, because uh, my business partners were also football players with me at Notre Dame and that went on to play in the NFL. So all very type A, very competitive. That camaraderie. You know, the camaraderie that, you know, that that's what that's what you miss, you know, when you retire. And I just remember being around the seals and the jokes that they have, you know, it was reminding me of the locker room and we fit right in, you know. Um, and I, you know, I just remember that I hated leaving. I was like, man, like that's it was almost like leaving the locker room again, yeah. you know. Um, but anyway, you know, that was the first customer, you know, and I remember speaking with these three and four star generals on the call to sell the, sell the product. And I remember thinking after I got off the the call with those guys, I could sell anything to anyone now, you know, with the questions they asked and the intensity in which they asked the questions. So I ended up selling out of that company and basically what got me to Las Vegas um, was interesting. Basically I saw a shift in the way people were marketing things, you know, as being an athlete, I knew people would come to me and be willing to give me money to promote something that I didn't give a damn about. Um, that happens every day, you know, you know, athlete endorsements, but I, you know, I, I knew that Shaq, Shaq right now. Yeah. Right. Anything, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually pretty funny. Shaq can sell anything. Like or, he's, he's on you know, every like, commercial known to man right now. <laughs> Yeah, good for him, man. But it's still funny, too. Um, But I realized that consumers were getting smarter and the people that were going to be able to sell the products weren't the paid athletes or celebrities. It was your peers. You know, it was your friend. And it it was really coming down to influencers. Who 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 do you trust in your life that Mm -hmm. can influence you? So basically, I, I wrote a few algorithms, which is funny, like I've. I wasn't a math guy, but I wrote a few algorithms about around social media and how you can tr- track brand specific social influence. Now, at the time, this was this was brand new. Like, you know, social media was just getting big, you know, so the ability to track who specifically is influential to your brand was brand new, because at the time, I don't know if you remember, it was a thing called clout and they gave you a yep. clout score. Um, but the cloud score didn't tell Nike or Sony or, you know, BMW or Toyota who was influential to them. Like it was just a broad score. So anyway, I wrote an algorithm and created a company called Fluencer that literally tracked brand specific social influence. And, you know, the crazy thing is in a year, it took me, well, it took me two years, but in a year's time, I was told no maybe 120 times just all the 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 people i went to go talk to all the vcs and angels and funny thing about that is tony shea rest in peace was the first no that i got i flew out to vegas to to pitch him um he was creating a new fund called the vegas tech fund and he said you know jerome you're the perfect person to start this company because you understand influence intimately based on your past you know profession um, but no, I'm going to pass on it for now. And I was like, all right, like, you know, you know, you know, 
that's that's cool. And I was like, if you like me as a person doing it, that's all I need to know. And you like the concept. I said, like, I'll see you in a year. So the funny thing about it, literally 365 days later, he invested in that in that in that brand, in that company. And I had to move my family and my, my whole team out to Las Vegas and it was, it was amazing. It was a whirlwind, you know, living in Las Vegas and learning the other side of Las Vegas, the, the tame side, the, the, the nature side, which, which I love, my kids love, you know, everything outside of the strip. And, you know, that's, that's what got me here. It kept me here. So, you know, I've talked a lot, man, but <laughs> I've, I've, had, stuff. I've, I've, I've done so many things and experienced so many, so many things, you know, I, I love just, you know, even with MVP, you know, mm-hmm. speaking with a lot of the vets, you know, because the vets, you know, they're, they're some of the most, you know, intelligent people. Like, if you get them and, yeah, you, tell me about what you know. They'll talk, you know, I mean, you know, you, they'll talk forever. And it's like, man, you, you, you're a PhD in this, basically, mm-hmm. you know. And sadly, a lot of them don't have the business knowledge or the financial knowledge to turn that amazing concept into a business, you know, yeah. which a lot of a lot of people don't. So, you know, the, one of the joys I have is actually working with vets and helping them write business plans, helping them take that amazing concept that they've been noodling around with for five, six years, getting out of their head and on paper and taking that first step, you know, because obviously we all know that first step is the hardest, yeah. but it's also the most rewarding, too. So, you know, that's that's me in, in life, you know, um, you know, the, the, my latest venture, which I just started is about to launch. Um, it's called rares. Um, and essentially <laughs> two years ago, I, I've always been a sneakerhead. Um, but I've always, as I mentioned earlier, loved finance and the stock market and derivatives. And, and so it occurred to me like, man, what if you can, you know, turn these high value appreciating sneakers into stocks? So, you know, mm. so let me let me rewind a little bit. So when people talk about sneakerheads, yeah. most people look at it as a kind of an underground kind of, you know, urban, which which it is. It started that way, kind of hobby type thing. Collection, but, yeah, yeah, collection. But what most people don't realize is sneakers as an asset class, because it's an asset class now, has have collectively outperformed in terms of appreciating appreciating gold the S&P 500 and apple stock consistently over the past decade meaning if you invested in sneakers you'd get a bigger return than investing in any of those three things that i've mentioned mm-hmm. um it's a multi billion dollar a year industry because of the secondary market meaning there's retail where you go foot locker you buy a shoe 100 $200, you know, depending on the type of Jordan it is, probably you can, depending on the shoe, you can instantly flip that shoe on the secondary market. When I say secondary, it's like StockX, eBay, um, and make thousands of time return on it instantly. Um, depending on the shoe, the collaboration Jordan did with somebody, uh, for example, the Travis Scott's, you know, you know, those shoes are when they drop with $26,000, you know, um, so basically, it's an asset class. So I figured out a way to securitize sneakers with my company Rares. So the problem is access. Most people don't have access to those sneakers at retail price at two hundred dollars. 
So they end up having to pay consignment prices, which is the, the multi, several thousand dollars, which then they're priced out because all they want to do is flip the shoe or most people want to do is flip the shoe mm -hmm. to make money off of it. So what we created was a way to invest in the shoe. So we, we purchased the shoe. We go through a whole IPO process with the SEC. So our company is regulated by the SEC and we turn the shoe into a company that you can invest in and we split it into shares. So during the IPO process on our platform, you, you buy shares in that shoe, fractional ownership. Yeah. And once the IPO closes, meaning all the shares available for that particular sneaker or sneakers, plural, are, are bought, um, then we get into secondary trading, just like in the stock market. You know, if I didn't get in on that IPO, you know, <laughs> I can and you pay ten dollars a share. I'll say, hey, I want to give you eleven or twelve dollars a share because I know this shoe is going to appreciate. You, you know, you could trade on the secondary market, like I said, just like the stock market. And then at a certain price or a certain point, when that shoe plateaus in value, we liquidate it and everyone invested in it um, will presumably make money, assuming that the, uh, the, the liquidation price, you know, was higher than the, the IPO price, which in, in our case, the only shoe, shoes we deal with appreciate. Um, so that's, that's really fun because part of that is educating for me, yeah. educating people on how to invest you know, terms of investment and really fractional ownership. You know, most people can't buy a 50000 or $200,000 sneaker, which there's a lot of those sneakers out there, but you can buy a share in that sneaker or multiple shares for 5 or $10 a share. That's interesting, and, yeah. And then, you know, obviously when the value of the sneaker increases, so do the value of the shares you own in that sneaker. So, um, you know, this this is a fun company. We've we've already, um, yeah. TechCrunch, did a story on us and actually doing another feature on us. So anyway, man, I'm, I'm full of stories and, and ideas, man, but um, uh, that's what I'm working on now. Yep. Got a bunch of friends that are sneakerheads. So that's uh that's good stuff. I'm already yeah. sitting there thinking, I'm like, I'm going to be messaging these people as soon as I get done with this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, where, do you, where do you see yourself like five years from now? Man, that's a great question. Uh, happy. I see myself happy, man. Like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, having done everything that I've done in life and just been fortunate and blessed, lucky, um, you know, you learn how to live life better for yourself, meaning you learn how to not say yes to everything. You know, mm -hmm. you learn, you know, that there's certain boundaries that you have to set for yourself and other people too. And if you live by those boundaries and those rules, then you, you generally go to bed happy at night. And for me, you know, with my two sons, just seeing them grow and, and mature, they're 11 and seven. And, you know, that since I didn't have a father growing up, I think I'm hypersensitive to being there for them. You know, no matter what I'm doing in business, it, it's secondary to my sons. And I don't care what I'm doing. I'll cut out of a meeting and let's go to the batting cage. You know, let's, you know, so... I see myself happy and, and watching my sons, whatever they're doing, you know? Um, so that's, that's what it is. Yep. What's uh, it's an incredible journey that you've had. And uh, what's the biggest thing you've learned about yourself throughout the whole thing? Man, you know, tenacity, you know, when you, you, you don't know how far you dig or how far you go, <laughs> 
or what level it will take you to not quit until you have to keep going. Basically, yeah. I know that's very cliche too, um, but you know there, there were times on this journey where you know I didn't have enough money for hotel rooms when I would travel to like San Francisco, and you know I sleep on park benches if 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 I couldn't get all of my meetings in one day, which I tried to, you know, I, I, could, I couldn't afford that hotel room. So, you know, I'd sleep on the bench and we'd have a meeting in the morning, then I'd go home, you know? So moments, moments like that, that allowed me to understand who I really was and how much I really wanted something, you know what I'm saying? And, and yeah. what I was willing to sacrifice to get it, you know? So, you know, what I've, what I, so to answer your question, you know, I learned, you know, the human mind is so much more powerful than you think it is. You know, there's times when you sit around and wonder, how is this going to be done? You know, or no one's ever done this. Why would it work for you? And then you're able to tell yourself, well, you know, I don't care what everyone else is doing. This is what I want to do, though. And I'll either fail or I'll, I'll succeed. But if I don't try, then I'll never know. So, you know, I just, 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 you know, I learned about being tenacious and, and not taking no, you know, at first glance, you know? So, yeah. I'd say too, like listening to your story, it seems like you've been very intentional with your time. Even like when you had that seven hours, you were intentional with it and you were like, no, I'm not going to sit here and wait around uh, and always taking action, always jumping on something next. I think that's uh that's a good quality that a lot of people struggle with as well. So that, that really stood out to me. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. Being intentional, man, being deliberate, you know, even, even I mean, with your kids. Thing. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. But, uh, yep. I, I got one more question and then I, I want to do a little word association with you real quick. Okay. What, want your legacy to be 50 years from now when your kids are talking about you what do you want them to say about you man he was he was there he was present you know i don't i don't care about anything else but i was i was always present you know because you know i you know not having a father you you learn that i learned that i learned what what presence really meant for my father's absence you know um and anytime I get off kilter or to this or to that, I go back to, man, I just got to be present. You know, I don't need to have all the answers or, you know, I don't need to, you know, <laughs> we don't need to wrestle, but I just had to be there present for them, you know, and after everything's said and done, that's all I care about is they, they knew I was present for them and it wasn't a chore either. It was, mm -hmm. I wanted to be present for them, you know? So, yeah. We're going to wrap. Usually we start off our episode with some rapid fire, but we're going to kind of flip it and end yours with some rapid fire word associations here. First thing yeah. that comes to your mind before I start getting into people, first thing that comes to your mind. First time you put on that Notre Dame uniform. Wow, this is real. <laughs> this is where this is. This is this is tradition. This is real now. You know, my journey to go to the NFL is real now. That was First thing that came to mind, yeah. First time putting on NFL uniform. <laughs> How did I make it here? You know, um, congratulations. Yeah. You know, I was, I'm a big proponent of 
man, life is a bitch. So you got to congratulate yourself along the way different times or else you'll miss those moments. So I remember thinking, man, congratulations. You you came a long way, but you made it. That's good. All right. Now I'm interested to hear what you got to say with these. Jamal Lewis. <laughs> a beast. <laughs> Especially you were there the right year. Yeah, he was a beast, man. I was talking about him the other day, being 260, 260 pounds, chiseled muscle, running a 4-3, but nimble too. Man, he was a beast. <laughs> I think that what that 03 season, he had like over 2,000 yards. Yep. Yep. You had yep. you y'all had the offensive player of the year, you had the defensive player of the year, and you had the um defensive rookie of the year as well with Terrell Suggs. That was a, Suggs. That was a good group. Yep. Man, that so was a great year. Speaking of him, Terrell Suggs. <laughs> Um, that's interesting. Um, creative, I say creative, just knowing Terrell since shit, I was 22, he was 20 and just seeing the way he's created a, a image of himself and a life of himself and coming into the league, you know, we used to joke that he was so young and naive and immature he used to just regurgitate everything he saw on BET. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's almost like he didn't have an original bone in his body, but he was still young, trying to fit in with everything. Um, but now to see the way he's created a good life for himself and, you know, a good, you know, Hall, a Hall of Fame career for himself, yeah. I, I love it. You know, so creative. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jonathan Ogden. <laughs> As a man. He's a man. Yeah. You know, there's a joke all the time. You know, I remember in practice blitzing in one time as a safety blitz and I jumped for some reason and Ogden caught me in the air and, you know, I was 230, you know, and he stopped my momentum in the air and threw me the other way. And I remember in film, Rex Ryan, my D coordinator was like, Sap, you know, I, I appreciate your, your, you know, your bravery, but I question your intelligence for what you just did, you know? So, yeah. So he was, he was a man, a grown man. Ray Lewis. A leader. I've never, never been around a leader like that ever. I don't, I don't think there ever be another leader like him. You know, not only did he improve, he made you, he inspired, it was almost like um, a, 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 like a rock, one of those rocks that you put in the middle of all the other rocks and it heats up all the other rocks. Yeah. He's that rock, you know? Mm. And I mean, it was intense. He's a leader. Okay. Ed Reed. Uh, intelligent, very intelligent. You know, talk about someone who didn't learn how to read till later on in life. Yeah. And started a program to teach adults how to read. Um, one of the most intelligent people I've ever been around, just the way he's able to look at situations, you know, evaluate film, watch players and look at, um, look at the way they do certain things and then react off of it. And, you know, intelligent. I mean, I'm, I'm, he's literally the most intelligent player I've ever been around. All right, two more for you. Edron James. Edge. <laughs> uh, he's deceiving. Deceiving. Edron, so Ed is probably the most intelligent person, but Edron is, is the probably the smartest. That You know, the whole dreadlock, 
gold yeah. teeth. You know, if you go to his locker, he has the most books in his locker than anyone on really? the team. All he does is read. I'm talking about thick books, too. Yeah. He's the type of person that's like, if I don't know about it, I'm going to read about it. And he was like, this whole, you know, this is this is me. This is how I grew up. This is where Curious I'm mind. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Final one, Peyton Manning. Oh, man, the general. <laughs> you know, I tell people all the time, Peyton was, it was almost like he was a savant, the way he, he, he could, I remember watching film with him and he would watch one play like 40, 50 times. And I'm, you know, and you know, obviously the safety and the quarterback read off of each other. Um, it's like a dance almost. A lot of people think it's the middle linebacker, the quarterback, but it's, it's technically the safety because mm -hmm. the quarterback wants to know what's what defense, the secondary is in, what coverage we're in. So Peyton was like, Hey, come watch film with me. So he watched one play 40, 50 times. And in that play, he would know basically down in distance, the personnel the defense has, and, you know, and he'd know who's going to tip their hand. That's why he goes through all those gyrations and, huh, huh, you know, like, because someone's going to flinch one way. And he knows if that player flinched that way, based on who's in the game, the situation, the down in distance, he knows what defense you're in. And now he has you, you know, we used to say Peyton beats, he beat you on Saturday before you even play the game. You've already lost because he knows how to get you to, to show your hand. And he's the type of player that could, he'll make you pay for it. You know, it's one thing to get you to show your hand and you, you know, but it's another thing to actually execute on the audible too. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, it, you know, it, it, it was, it was fun. It was so fun to watch him play the game because one, he loved it. He it was like playing backyard football for him, you know. Plus, to play play with a player that played on such a high cerebral level, it was like, man, like this is this is Hall of Fame right here. This is yeah. one of the greatest right here that I'm getting the chance to play with. So, I say the general. Yep. Okay. What final words do you have for our listeners out there? Well, first of all, I just want to thank you guys for listening to me. Um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm just a dude. So appreciate you lending your ears. But also, you know, I know times get hard for all of us, you know, but the, the thing that the thing that makes us who we are is our ability not to quit. And if you can understand that and understand that if you just keep going, something good would happen. Something good will happen. Most, a lot of people just quit, you know, too, too soon. If you keep going and you keep believing in the reason why you're going, which is important too, then, then things will turn around. You know, I'm a witness to that, man. Like, like I said, I was on park benches, you know, holding on to my laptop and, you know, things changed real quick just because I didn't quit. It was nothing special. The only special thing about it was the ability to have the foresight not to quit. That's all it was, man. So I I tell that to the listeners, man. No matter what you're going through, you know, I, I pray that it, it gets easier for you. Um, but don't quit and you'll be okay. I like it. Well, I can't thank you enough for for taking time out of your your schedule to join us here for this episode. Folks, that is gonna conclude this episode of the Shadows Podcast. 